Hello, everyone, and welcome to our second installment of the Our Street Meeting House Untold Stories podcast. You guys already know who I am. My name is Dennis Long. I'm a senior at Rowan University. I'm a history major, but I would like to give an introduction to Allison Titman, the executive director of the Alice Paul Institute. And today we are going to be discussing women Quaker activists, uh, specifically Alice Paul in movements such as the women's suffrage and women's rights movements. Allison, feel free to introduce yourself. Thanks, Dennis. I'm really glad to be here. As Dennis noted, my name is Allison Titman. I've been the executive director of the Alice Paul Institute since January. I have a background in museums as well as in women's history. So I know a lot about Alice Paul, about the suffrage movement through that context, but I definitely still have more to learn after just two and a half months on the job. I'm happy to have you here as this way we can have uh, a nice little like back and forth talking about my research with Quakers and your researcher with uh, uh, women's rights activists. So I just kind of want to start this off a little bit with a uh, little bit of a prelude when it comes to um, Quakers and women's because uh, Quaker and women have an interesting uh, relationship in how women and men sort of viewed themselves in a Quaker society. Uh, early Quaker women had forms of authority in the organization of the church and their community and did not exactly struggle with men for power, but also did not submit to them. They held some equal roles of authority, but neither was really separate from one or another. Uh, some Quaker women were also very unafraid to speak out against the, any, any sort of uh, patriarchal oppression that they experienced. I have a, a very interesting uh, quote that I found uh, in my research from a Quaker woman's sermon, but it, it was a very interesting thing to read because it was very much so something that I could see someone in the modern, modern day saying. It says, quote, my dear friends, there are three things that I very much wonder at. The first is that children should be so foolish as to throw up stones, brick bats, and clubs into fruit trees to knock down fruit. If they would only let it alone, it would, it would fall itself. The second is that men should go to war and kill one another. If they would only let one another alone, they would die themselves. And the third and last thing which I wonder at is that young men should be so unwise as to go after young women, for if they would stay at home, the young women would come after them. The condition of the most unfortunate is almost the most despised. Is, is it not enough that they are miserable, but to enhance their affliction, they must be persecuted with ignominy and scorn. In truth, man is a very savage animal. So very, uh, <laughs> of course, harsh language in some aspects, you know, in, in, the, in the thematics of, of 19th century America, but also it has a little bit of truth to it in some ways. There is a lot of, uh, there is a lot of violence that, that exudes from patriarchal systems that we experienced throughout all of America's history. And uh, I was curious if you feel like, if you, Allison, feel like uh, sentiments like this definitely contribute to, uh, at the very least, Quaker women wanting to contribute to these women's rights movements. Well, I think it says a lot that from the very beginning of the women's suffrage movement in America, that Quaker women were so heavily involved. You spoke a bit already about gender equality within Quakerism and how men and women were viewed as equal, even if it still potentially felt like they held different roles. One topic that I look forward to reading more about is marriage within the Quaker community. What held many women back from being more involved in activism and sometimes in public life as a whole was the way that marriage functioned, the way that women were expected to be subservient to their husbands, the way women didn't even exist under the law as soon as they married. They held none of the rights of citizenship, but instead their husbands held those rights on their behalf. But I think it says a lot that married Quaker women were very active 
and very vocal about women's suffrage. And I'm interested to learn more about how gender equality applied in Quaker marriage to see how that allowed them to continue to be public figures. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, I'm, I'm currently doing my, my senior year uh, seminar paper on various Quaker social justice movements. Uh, and I have found a lot of uh, source material about specifically famous female Quaker activists, such as, uh, you know, not only just Alice Paul that we're talking about today, but also Lucretia Mott, Amy Kirby Post, and each of them seem to be married, at least uh, both Mott and Post. I, I don't exactly remember if, if Paul was married. I don't know why that's blanking from my head right now. But either way, it's still interesting to see that even in this married state, even though they're, like you said, they're not exactly legal citizens under the eyes of the law. I forget exactly how you worded it, but it's it's still interesting to see them continue on with this drive to strive for uh, gender equality, even in such a harsh legal state. And the other thing too, is that it's interesting to think that this wasn't relatively that long ago. Uh, this is still less than 200 years ago, which is quite surprising uh, when you really think about it. There's a lot of things in American history that I feel like people reali don't realize was not that long ago, especially things like the civil rights movement too. So it's really interesting to see how quickly this type of thing has evolved from ideologies uh, such as those of um, Quaker women. And uh, when it comes to ideologies influencing people, I feel like this would be actually a pretty good time why not just jump into Alice Paul already? Uh, just to kind of give a little bit of brief background on Alice Paul, she was born on uh, January 11th, 1885 in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, which is where the Alice Paul Institute is located. And uh, some, from, from some of my research, uh, it said that she was raised in a Hicksite Quaker family. And so that kind of made her accustomed to the more activist side of Quakerism being raised by activist Hicksites and uh, later influenced her, uh, quote, commitment to nonviolence. Um, do you have anything that you would like to say on Alice Paul's upbringing? Well, I would definitely like to give credit to Alice Paul's mother, Tacy. It was actually Tacy who introduced Alice to the concept of the fight for women's suffrage. She took Alice to the meetings that were happening around their home and in their community at a fairly young age. So it was definitely an ideology that Paul absorbed early. And her mother was a very observant Hicksite. She adhered to the standards of dress within that community. Um, so it's interesting to think about what ideologies Alice was absorbing at home. I get the sense that Alice lived a fairly protected life in a very close-knit Quaker community. She went off to Swarthmore College, which is a Quaker institution at the age of 16, after having gone to a friend's school and been a very close part of a Quaker meeting. So it wasn't until after college that she really got a broader view of the world and started having to try to reconcile that with the ideologies within which she was raised. Absolutely, yeah. I feel like uh, uh, one interesting quote from, from uh, a secondary source I was reading while, while researching, um, and it's, it basically say, it stated that, you know, while her, up, her Hicksite upbringing influenced her progressive poli uh, politics, it was uh, mainly, uh, quote, her own ambition and newfound awareness of gender equality that brought her to realize that she was personally invested in suffrage. So do you, this is kind of like a nature versus nurture situation, if, if you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here. Not exactly, but... Um, it still has, it's still reminiscent of it because, you know, while she was nurtured into this sort of more activist leaning upbringing, there was still so much of the world that she would be able to become conscious to when it came to just how much inequality women were uh, undergoing, especially having gone to a, a higher education, she would have likely had a 
you know, like you said, uh, being able to look more out into the world and, and see exactly what was going on. So do you feel like, do you feel like, a, what do you feel like was kind of like this true driving force in a way? Like, is, is there something that you kind of lean more towards to? Well, I think it would have to be both with Alice. As you learn more about her adult life, you realize that she devoted its entirety to her crusade for gender equality. Um, from when she graduated from college, started doing settlement housework, and then went to England to continue her education and got involved in the suffrage movement there, she became very single-minded about the fight for gender equality. And as we've noted, it was something she absorbed at home, but I think it takes a special person to be that single-minded about a cause and to really never deviate from it. Most people know that Alice Paul was heavily involved in the movement to get women the vote what they don't know is what happened after 1920, when the 19th Amendment passed and women were able to vote. Alice didn't abandon the movement and move on to something else. She went on to write the Equal Rights Amendment, found the World Women's Party, and spend the next almost 60 years continuing to push for gender equality for women. She really kept on with that crusade. It, and didn't have much of a life outside of that. Her friends were people she met through the movement. She spent most of her adult life living in the headquarters of the National Women's Party. So she literally lived in her office. Life was really work for her. Mm -hmm. And kind of going back to, to, to what we said earlier about how this stuff isn't really that long ago, I just looked up to double check the date. She only passed away in 1977. She, you know, granted, she was rather old having been born in 1885, but it wasn't really that long ago when she passed away. My parents were still alive when she was alive, which is very interesting to think about. And also looking at this, too, it seemed that she never married. So it, it, it also kind of um, goes beyond the standard that previous uh, women activists, specifically Quaker women activists, had um, aligned themselves to, so considering that both people like Lucretia Mott and Amy Kirby Post had been married as well. You talk about the Women's Rights Party. Uh, there was an interesting quote that I found in uh, a uh, primary source that I found in a in like a little memo from the from the Women's Rights Party. Uh, one of them said that Alice Paul had quote built up a nationwide organization of women by the pledge to regard uh, another quote women's suffrage as the foremost pol political issues of the day, supporting it irrespective of the interests of any political party. So, like you said, she very very committed to this and i'm not surprised that she was basically sleeping in her office uh i feel like that shows a level of commitment that is really unmatched by uh it only matched by a few other uh, figures in american history in the last installment of this we actually talked about um benjamin lay who was a uh, another quaker uh, staunch abolitionist who very similarly to alice paul was incredibly dedicated to uh the cause that he fought for going to very very uh, great extents to try to get his uh, anti-slavery point across. So I feel like uh, both not only just Quaker upbringing, but also just standard commitment to what they truly believe in and having witnessed the, the inequalities that they are trying to combat really does have a strong, strong impact on, on, on the drive of, of a person for their cause. Let's actually let's actually go real quick to to, to Alice Paul in England actually because this is a really interesting subject. I was fascinated by this when I was reading about this. Uh, do you do you remember where she uh, went off to school in uh, England? I I don't think I wrote it down. 
There was a community for Quakers pursuing education in England. Its name escapes me right now. But again, you can see how this follow, she followed this trajectory of Quaker education from a friend's school to Swarthmore and then over to England. And then that's really where she started to think more about what she wanted to be involved in, not to separate from Quakerism, but to start to explore outside of it. She definitely went outside of it, considering that she had actually been imprisoned for for participating in these uh, more. Would you consider like the, the the England suffrage movements a little bit more radical in their practices compared to uh, the American ones? The English suffragists were vocal about their willingness to utilize more militant tactics. They felt like that's what was making them more successful in gaining attention. And that was everything from chaining themselves to gates, to breaking windows, to interrupting speeches by important political figures. And this was really spearheaded by the women in the Pankhurst family, Christabel and Emmeline being potentially the most famous members and the ones who are really identified with those tactics. What's interesting is when Alice came back to America, having been schooled in those tactics, she had to be very careful about separating what the American movement was going to do under her leadership because the Americans had read about the British suffragists and found them really threatening. So Alice could see that in order for women to get suffrage in America, she was going to have to disavow some of those tactics and to create a new image for the American suffragists. And there's a lot written about how they did this, um, both in sort of admiring this strategy of creating the image of a suffragist that was palatable to an American audience, but also a growing criticism because the image they created was young, white, attractive, (laughs) middle to upper class. It was one defining image that didn't necessarily fit the whole community of American women, which is a legacy that the movement for gender equality continues to struggle with today. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I found uh, in my research, I found uh, a, a, a short document of multiple uh, newspaper clippings from when Alice Paul had returned uh, from England to America. And uh, it's interesting to see uh, each of these different accounts. Uh, one of them even says that uh, she had uh, been tube fed while in English prison, uh, which is interesting to see, you know, considering, like I said, this wasn't that long ago, yet they're still using such strange practices in, in these types of situations, but it also goes to show just with the extents of what a patriarchal society does against women's rights activists they you know rather kind of like rather barbaric in a way i don't want to like use a word like that but it, it it's kind of the, just the first one coming to my mind but nonetheless though it's still really inspiring to see nonetheless that alice paul still continued to commit herself to this cause, albeit, you know, having kind of, like you said, disavowing the practices that she saw and admired while in England, but she was still lauded by other women's rights activists once she returned, you know, having kind of being like a, like a, a civil disobedience martyr uh, in a way. Do you, uh, in a little bit of a, in a little bit of a different context, do you feel like Alice Paul could be a strong case for the argument that, you know, great individuals can either make or break a social justice movement like the women's rights movement? I think that we as historians like to seize upon individuals as figures, as representatives of a movement. I think that at the time the movement is happening, it's clear that there's a much um, sort of 
broader group of people involved, but over time it gets boiled down and we focus on individual people. But I think that's useful. And I think it happens at the time too, especially in things like the media. As you noted, yeah. Alice was written about often in the media and she positioned other suffragists to be written about as well because she realized the power of media coverage of making people into larger than life images. Um, and it's interesting to look at the way that they were personified in that kind of coverage as you noted, Alice was first imprisoned and force-fed while she was in England and received media coverage for it back home. But those articles still referred to her as things like a shy slip of a girl. Yeah. I cannot imagine calling an adult woman who was tied <laughs> down and force-fed a shy slip of a girl. But that yeah. was how the media was covering the suffragists. Again, to make them more palatable or to make the story one that audiences wanted to read about. So I think it helped that there were these sort of pivotal moments and pivotal practices that the media could seize upon to turn Alice into a story as well as a person. Absolutely, yeah. That, that, that like, what's the right word for it? That, uh, I'm forgetting, the, the word is slipping from my mind, but just manipulating the type of story into where you, you turn these strong women into such like, frail objects in, in a media light is really just repulsive and still honestly something that I've from my personal experience I've seen continue to this day I I often see you know especially media standards when it comes to women in their age have become so ridiculously high that even a woman who hits her 30s is considered an old lady in 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 some uh media respects and it's 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 it really just goes to show seeing something like this that people calling Alice Alice Paul a, a shy slip of a girl that these types of practices still continue onward and that Alice Paul's fight still needs to continue to this day even without her here. Um, when we come back to to the the concept of of Quaker women and how they feel uh, in, in in almost equal to men, do you feel like even later on in Alice Paul's life that she still uh, kind of embody this type of belief? I mean, Alice constructed her life around the fight for gender equality. And I think it can be traced back to her origins in a Quaker family with a mother who was taking her to suffrage meetings, as well as, as we said, clearly just something inside of her that called out to her to become a crusader for justice. I will say that at the Alice Paul Institute, we make sure to acknowledge Alice's failings as well as her successes. She was a great crusader for gender equality, but along the way did not stand up for things like racial equality that we view as so important today in order to accomplish her single-minded mission of getting women the vote and then furthering their legal rights. She was willing to make compromises like um, making African-Americans women's presence in the suffrage movement less visible again, in order to make it more palatable to this mainstream audience that was still deeply invested in white supremacy. So Alice Paul's legacy is key. She was a crusader for gender equality, but we don't wanna make it seem like she was perfect or that she was an absolute hero. Um, we're fine with her being a complicated figure and we like to explore that and to talk about how the movement for gender equality that's happening today can do better and has come a long way even since Alice's time as an activist. Definitely, yeah. There, there, it's always very interesting to see 
the complicated relationships and intersectionality when it comes to previous rights movements. Like you said, um, I believe you said it earlier on, but a lot of the women's rights movements, at least during this time, kind of had a more upper to middle class, younger white women focus. And I remember learning in one of my American history courses uh, earlier on in my college career that very much so a lot of that late uh, 19th century progressive movement was kind of spearheaded by upper middle class white women and tried to create that singular middle class uh kind of ideal that even nowadays many uh at least um white middle class activists also kind of strive for so it it kind of has not died in a way which is, is very interesting to see and i and i'm also happy to see that the alice paul institute uh does recognize her failings this way people can you know people are not create this this false dichotomy is not created for uh the the american public and it it shows goes to show that this type of critical thinking is really essential to not just learning about history but learning about society as a whole and, and being able to understand your fellow people uh going back to the alice paul institute as a whole uh, feel free to tell me a little bit more about it if you would like to add a little bit more i would love to hear about it i'm sure that uh you would love to have some free promotion as well <laughs> <laughs> thank you the alice paul institute was founded to celebrate alice paul's 100th birthday which happened in 1985. Uh, since then we have been honoring alice's legacy by continuing to crusade for gender equality through measures such as the equal rights amendment and to provide leadership training and empowerment to women. We wanna create the next generations of Alice Pauls. So many of our programs focus on leadership training for girls and young women. Our signature program is called the Girls Leadership Council. It's aimed at a high school audience and the girls gather once a month during the school year to talk about issues affecting women and girls today and to create projects that are going to allow them to get their own experience organizing and executing something, as well as to educate younger girls about the things that they're learning. We own Alice Paul's childhood home, Paulsdale. So if you want to see the environment she grew up in, we can provide that experience. Right now we have an outdoor audio tour, but we're looking forward to reopening the interior to public visitation later this year. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's awesome. I, uh, I, I perused your website a, a few times while I was doing this research as well. And it really seems like a, like a great place. And I'm sure that um, both uh, the Alice Paul Institute and the Archery Meeting House, I feel like are, are two very, very important uh, uh, places to, to go to in, in this area when it comes to learning about uh, social justice history as you know, you have so much history rooted in not only just the Quakers, but also in Alice Paul herself. Really, truly wonderful thing as a question to, to further discuss and to end this out on, when it comes to considering what we talked about, uh, Alice Paul, her upbringing, her, her social experiences, what do you think is probably the most important aspect to really delve into, uh, not only just from, his, from an historian perspective, but also from a public perspective and to consider in, in, in someone's daily life? For me, it's the commitment to social change. I think looking at Quaker practices, the most interesting part to me is how this fundamental belief in equality becomes something that people put into action. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that Alice Paul did. And I think it's something that we should all examine within the context of our own lives. There is so much happening around social justice. How are we demonstrating a commitment to change and a commitment Absolutely. to equality in our world today? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, 
the the last installment we had also had a another figure at the spearhead of it uh so committed to social change in benjamin lay and i'm glad that we got another person similar to him who was so uh fervent about the cause that they were committed to and had gone through so many unique experiences in order to basically get to to where they were in, in their commitment so uh it's nice to see these these numerous ties in history and to be able to to connect this all into a grander message of you know kind of devoting your heart to uh, a, 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 a cause that you find yourself committed to, whether it be a singular cause or multiple causes. I know you have, uh, you know, single issue activists or many issue activists as well. Uh, but overall, I, I feel like this was a really wonderful discussion and I'm, I'm very happy to have had uh, talked to you about this. I, Alice Paul is really a wonderful figure in, in American history to, to study when it comes to, like you said, commitment to a cause and even the, uh, the intricacies of a uh, of a of a strong public figure that may have had some complex uh, aspects to them, like like we talked about. But overall, thank you so much for for this discussion, and I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, to wrap up here, I would like to thank our uh, our guest Allison Timmon for joining me today, as well as all of our listeners for tuning in. For more information about today's topics and resources, please visit historicasmh.org/podcast. Art Street Meeting House is dedicated to preserving and maintaining its historic meeting house and burial grounds and expanding public understanding of the impact and continued relevance of Quakers. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to continue to support Art Street Meeting House, please consider making a financial gift at historicasmh.org donate. Join us next time as we explore untold stories in Quaker history. See you then.